Welcome to the Wordsmith Podcast. I'm Josh Bennett, lead pastor of Awakened Church, joined by Shane Suggs. Word. And M. Grady Calhoun. Hey. The pastoral staff here at Awakened Church, and we're excited to be back with another episode of the Wordsmith Podcast, season four, episode two, looking at the letters of first, second, and third. John, how you guys doing? Good. Yeah, good. Loving life and living the dream. That's right, man. Well, we, if you missed last week, wanted to let you know we are starting off our episodes this season with a conversation card. And so we get a random question every week. You guys get to hear funny and possibly embarrassing stories and get to know a little bit more about your pastor. So, guys, here you go. When was the most inappropriate time you couldn't stop laughing? I personally have had several of those. Twice during prayer that I can remember. One time when I was praying, I actually... I misspoke, and I don't know when people misspoke, misspeak during prayer. I just it's funny to me for some reason, and I did it, and I just started laughing like during during the prayer. I tried to catch myself, but I just mm-hmm. I, it was a really quick prayer because I like I had to end it after that. Uh, it was an offertory prayer, as a matter of fact, mm. uh, which is I don't uh, those aren't generally humorous, you know. So, yeah. uh, and then one time when um, someone else was praying, I. I started laughing. I've I've laughed during a funeral before. I've laughed during a wedding. A wedding I was conducting, not oh boy. not just a wedding I was attending. Because and and I tell you what it was. I had it rehearsed in my head. You know he's he's going to give the ring first. She's going to give the ring second, and everything. Sure. And then whenever we got up there, she has out the ring, but I start talking to him as if he's giving the ring, and I was like, I so I covered up the microphone, and I just started laughing, and I was like guys, we need to start over. And so she had to put the ring up and he had to get the ring out. And we just, we went on through with it. And eventually everybody quit laughing, but um, it was pretty funny to begin with. I mean, it's good that they started laughing because if they had not started laughing, it would have been obvious that you had committed a serious faux pas. Yes. Oh yeah, absolutely. Pastor Shane would get no honorarium for that wedding. No (laughs) honorarium. Yeah. I mean, I have several myself stories like this. Most of mine evolve around college. So we were in chapel, and as I'm sure you've heard us mention before, uh, at our college, you attended chapel essentially four times a week. And one of our most distinguished and honorable professors was preaching that day. And he, I think it was like a mini-series he was doing. Maybe it was like four or five messages or something like that. And on that day, his message was on Christian duty, D-U-T-Y. But we were all college-age young men and young women, so when we hear duty, we do not think of D-U-T-Y. We think of uh, other things. So anyway, so he keeps saying duty, duty, duty. He, he hammers it throughout the message over and over and over again. And one of my dear and best friends, Thad Douglas, uh, Macon, Georgia, Thad Douglas, was sitting in front of me. And I'm not blaming Thad, although it is definitely mostly his fault. Uh, I'm not blaming him. But Thad was the first one who started laughing about it. But he wasn't audibly laughing. His shoulders were shaking. You know how oh, you're trying yeah, to hold. Yeah, yeah. You're trying you to hold in a laugh, the laughter, and his shoulders just kept shaking. And I just kept looking and seeing his shoulders shaking up and down, which kept making me laugh. And then, of course, you're in a chapel service, so you're trying to be reverent and respectful. But he keeps saying duty over and over again. I keep seeing Thad's shoulders shaking, and it probably took about 20 minutes for me to finally able to get back to. I have no idea what the message was about. I'm sure it was a very good message. It's about Christian duty. <laughs> I have no idea what he said, where he went with it, how he applied it, because I spent 20 minutes just trying to, like, Matt, you have to stop laughing. Yeah. Now I'm curious who this preacher was. I'd rather not say who. Well, I have thought of a couple of stories, but everyone I think of 
I'm worried I'm going to embarrass one of our listeners. So I'm going to mm-hmm. um, switch it a little bit and think about some one time that somebody laughed at me. I had Connor. You guys remember Connor Hawk, our college intern, youth pastor here when he was in Tifton. And Connor and I had went fishing, and we had gotten my boat stuck on some logs. Mm-hmm. And I was taking a boat paddle, and I was pushing, pushing, pushing. And as I was pushing on the, the log, the paddle slipped off of the log. Sure. And I went headfirst into the lake. And uh, Okay, okay, hold on. I got to stop because that's not an inappropriate time to laugh. Hold on, that, hold on. That hold on. totally Well, here, here's what made it inappropriate. When I fell, I hit a giant, like, I mean, eight inch at least in diameter stump, and it hit me in the leg. And so it was one of those deals where I was, like, hurt. But I look up at Connor, and he's doing that thing where you're trying your hardest not to laugh. So it was like, yeah. <laughs> and I finally look at him, and I'm like, Connor, you can laugh, man. This, this is funny. He's like, but you're hurt. I'm like, it's okay. It's very, very funny. That's right. And um, <laughs> it was very embarrassing, but it was funny. But Connor was trying. To, he thought it was an appropriate time to laugh because sure. he did not laugh for quite a while. But. That's telling because I, I assumed Connor would just not have been concerned about that. He would just bust it out laughing. Yes. Well, you know, at that point, I, Connor didn't know me very well, and I'm oh, guessing okay. he was gauging how I would respond to falling out of a boat because people will respond to that kind of stuff differently. Sure, yeah, yeah. Some people will be mad. Yeah. Some people might would never take somebody fishing with them again if they <laughs> laughed at them for that kind of stuff. So you're saying um, if that happened now, he would definitely just... Yes. And, and, and telling this it. story, I have thought of a time that I can share hey. because I'll embarrass my dad, but he's no longer with us. So... Um, when I was about 10 or 11 years old, I heard this audible screaming from our backyard. Mm-hmm. Help! Joshua! Help! So I go outside, and my dad was attempting to crawl up under the crawl space of the house. And we had vinyl siding Eve, and he had gotten stuck, like where the vinyl had, was stuck on his belly. Yeah. And he couldn't get under the house or out from under the house, uh, just because it was that deal where the vinyl was like cutting him and mm-hmm. stuff. And so I said... Uh, and I couldn't stop laughing, and he's just—he's really upset at this. And um, I, I couldn't stop. And I said, "Dad, I'm gonna go. You are not gonna get anybody." <laughs> and so it was just this really funny scene where it was almost like you know the scene from The Wizard of Oz where the witch is like half like gets collapsed on her legs are just hanging out. Yeah, that's kind of what the scene was. My dad's <laughs> legs were just hanging out, and he was yelling and didn't want me to get anybody. And I just—I couldn't help him because I couldn't stop laughing. That's right. Did you get in trouble for laughing? No, I mean, once he got out from under the house, he didn't want to ever speak of that incident again. <laughs> In fact, he was pretty upset when I told my mom about it. <laughs> uh, I bet. But um, it, it, it was it was pretty awesome yeah, yeah. type deal. But All right, well, let's move on. We're going to be looking today at 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through chapter 2, verse 2. And I'm going to ask Pastor Matt if he would read those verses for us today. Yes, sir. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light, and there's absolutely no darkness in him. If we say we have fellowship with him, and yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and are not practicing the truth. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, We make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the Righteous One. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, 
but also for those of the whole world. I'd like to start off just by saying this is a tremendous passage of Scripture with a lot of theological depth and truth, and especially as we look at the um, topic of soteriology and salvation and all of those things. But John comes out of the gate here in verse 5 with this idea and this phrase that God is light. What does he mean that God is light? Well, in the context here, uh, and, and I think in, in many places, whenever, um, especially John uses the term light, because he uses it in other uh, areas as, as well, um, light is sort of, uh, the, the meaning behind it is purity and perfection. Uh, so whenever he's talking about God is light, he's saying God is pure and God is perfect. Well, and let's bring it up a couple of those times. So John, in his his gospel, John chapter 1, verse 4 says, Life was in him, and that life was the light of man. Mm-hmm. And then in John chapter 8, verse 12, he says, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And at least both of those references, too, there's a connection between light and the source of life. Mm-hmm. And um, that that this light is bringing life to his followers. Yeah, because light is one of the fundamental elements of creation, even, right? The first thing he created, if we go at Genesis, was light. Let there be light. So, it, And it's this idea, if you watch movies or TV shows nowadays, you still see this. This idea, light is that which is good, that which is true, that is what beautiful. Darkness is that which is evil, that which is awful, that is what that which is harmful, and you see this pop up in other religions, you see this pop up in, uh, again, the movies and TV shows that we watch. This is, It's a common duality that we see throughout history, even, sure. is that this idea of contrasting light versus the dark. Yeah. Well, and that brings up a side topic, I guess, but there's so many gospel principles that find themselves into other themes of life. Um, You know, even if you, most stories, most movies, most great novels are a story of redemption, a story of Mm -hmm. hope. Very often, yeah. Um, And all of those things, like, why do they, like, I was, I remember years ago, I was reading a a very secular novel. It was not written by a Christian author. It was not intended to be a Christian book. But as I'm reading it, I'm like, I see a a type of Jesus in this story. And I'm like, why? Why does this author who has no ties to Christianity writing a story that has a picture of, um, of the gospel, a picture of Jesus. It's just because I think that story is so ingrained in us as individuals mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that even if we try to deny it, it's there. Yeah, and also, uh, and y'all have probably heard this before, that you know, like darkness doesn't exist. Like you can't actually create darkness. All you can do is take away the light. Yeah. Like darkness is created by the absence of light. Like right. you can you can make light, but you can't make darkness. All you can do is take the light away. Right. And then he he moves on into verse six into a. Yeah, a verse that could easily be taken too far or taken out of context. He says in verse 6, If we say we have fellowship with him, and yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and are not practicing the truth. So does this verse mean that if we say we walk with God but we sin, then we're lying and we don't really follow after Jesus and we're not really saved? Well, the obvious answer is no, because you have the first two verses of chapter 2. So then the real question is, (laughs) why not? Why does it not mean that? Yeah. So... uh, it's important to remember to walk, right, is a Hebrew idiom. Mm-hmm. It doesn't literally mean you putting one foot in front of the other and then slowly repeating this process so that you move from one point, point A to point B. It's literally your life, the way you behave. Mm-hmm. So what he's saying here is the way one lives, the way one behaves, you can't live your life in the darkness and say 
darkness, which is the opposite of light, which is the opposite of God and truth. You can't live your life in darkness and say that you are with God. Yeah, and um, many times, uh, especially with Hebrew writers, walk indicates a pattern. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. it's, it's, it's usually not... Um, walk is never used to represent an isolated incident. It's not like, you know what I'm saying? It's, it's yeah. a, it's a pattern of like Matthew said, a, a pattern of behavior. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, and, and I also think it carries with it some sort of action. Um, although I don't think it has to be physical action. It could be action of thought or, or speech or, or whatever that, sure. that may be, but it's still a pattern of that thing. I love what Martin Luther says. He says, but if we cling to the word that has been made known, we have this treasure, which is the blood of Christ. If we are beset by sins, no harm is done. The blood of Christ was not shed for the devil or for angels. It was shed for sinners. Accordingly, when I feel sin, why should I despair? Or why should I not believe that it has been forgiven? For the blood of Christ washes sins away. The main thing is that we simply cling to his word. Then there is no trouble. That. I think ties it up well that it's this idea of walking with the Father. It's this idea of living in the light and allowing our sins to be to come to light, allowing our sins mm-hmm. to be confessed, to be repented of, to yeah. to find hope and forgiveness um, from those things. So, how do we walk in the light, as verse seven calls us to do? Practically, what does that look like for well, a believer? I, I think, since according to my answer, since I'm saying that walking is usually uh, used as an indicator of a pattern. Mm-hmm. I, I would think if we use that same definition to to walk uh, in the light would mean to create a pattern of purity and obedience. Because because uh, whenever I was talking earlier on God is light, uh, meaning that in the light there is purity and perfection. Uh, of course, we won't reach perfection, but we can be obedient to that perfection, mm-hmm. to his perfect law. Uh, so I think to walk in it would be to create within our life a pattern of purity and obedience. Sure. Yeah. yeah, this um this falls well with the series we just finished up, Overhaul, this idea of we already are in Christ. We're a new creation right. in Christ. Now we're taking our life, our choices, our behaviors, the things that we do, and we're bringing it in line to who we are in Christ. Right. So I think that's what John is kind of encouraging us here to do here. Is sure. that you can't ignore what the rest of scripture says. None of us by our actions alone, by our works alone, can achieve righteousness or achieve perfection that's lost to us. It's only in Christ that we're able to have these things. So he's trying to encourage these people, don't walk in those sins of former life. Keep running the race that you've been on now. Don't listen to these other uh, false teachers, uh, false believers who are saying sin's not really a thing you have to worry about. You have to be mindful of your sinful nature. Yeah, it's this pursuit of Jesus. Mm-hmm. you know. And, and we've made reference throughout this series of Overhaul that you know, if, you, if you've said a prayer, but you've never really followed after Jesus, sure. if you're still living in the darkness, walking in the darkness, then you have to ask yourself, did I ever really follow Jesus? Did mm-hmm. I ever really mm-hmm. die to myself, um, as the gospel calls us to do? And so it is that pursuit of Jesus. We're going to fall. We're going to sin. We're going to stumble, as we see in the very next verse. He says, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins. So why is it essential for believers to confess our sins, to acknowledge our sin, and what is the importance of that? I think the first reason um, 
it's essential for believers to confess their sin is that we do sin. Or yeah. another way of saying that is it's true. <laughs> yes. That any part of the Christian life, it first has to be true if it's going to be good or valuable or anything like that. Um, I don't think... Sometimes you'll meet people and they don't... Oh, I'm not a sinner. I, I don't sin. I don't think that's true for the vast majority of people. Yeah. I think you have to ask some probing questions, and you've, you've got to poke them a little bit. But I don't genuinely think there's very many people who understand that they don't th- do wrong things, that they, mm-hmm. don't, they haven't committed harm in their life or what have yeah. you. There's something about—in our hearts, we know that there's something off, not only with the world around us, but even with our own selves. Yeah. Well, and I think what happens more often than not is in, instead of just outright denying sin, we soften it. Yes. And we even see this in the language. We'll, we will try to— change sin to mistakes or errors mm-hmm. or yeah. things mm-hmm. like that. And when sin is really, I mean, it's disobedience. It's sure. outright rebellion to God. And so I think even in that context, we say if we say we have no sin, even if it's the softening of sin, because mm-hmm. when we soften sin, we soften the gospel. Sure. sure. Because if we, because sin is something Jesus had to die for. So mm-hmm. when we downplay the awfulness of sin, even in our own lives, we're downplaying what Jesus did on the cross. Yeah, and to be clear, I mean, there are mistakes that aren't sinful. Sure. Right. Some sure. some sins are mistakes, uh, but if we're always using that language of mistake or error or something, and we're not using that sin language, it's probably revealing that we don't really understand what sin is and how it's affecting yeah. ourselves. Yeah, I remember Andy Stanley one time, he said, the Bible calls us sinners, not mistakers. Yeah. yeah. Um, but many times the people to qualify what's a sin and what's a mistake, if I do it, it's a mistake. If you do it, it's a sin. <laughs> That's yeah. right. Uh, and it's it's... There's a lot of truth in that because we do that. So we minimize our own sin but maximize other people's because ours is just a mistake because we have a reason why we did it, but you don't necessarily have a reason that I can see why you did it. But David Guzik says this. He says, to confess sin means to say the same as. That's what confess means. He says, so when we confess our sin, we are willing to say and believe the same thing about our sin that God says about it which is the first step towards repentance is mm-hmm. to, and he also goes into it a little further and says, you know, confess it's, it's in uh, whatever part of speech. I don't yeah. know a lot about English structure, uh, sentence structure, but it's in the same sort of speech that, um, that it's a continual thing. It's not a one and done, like to confess mm-hmm. our sin. It's a continual confession. <clears throat> yeah. Right. It's a continual confession, which means there's a continual repentance as well, yeah. which isn't, uh, explicitly mentioned in this verse, but it is implied when you we talk about confession, right. because it says that He will forgive us. So. Yeah, I mean Luther's first theses, if memory serves correctly, is that the life of the Christian life is not a, a moment of repentance, but a life of repentance, re- yes. continuously repenting. Yeah. Yes, and by the very nature of confessing our sins, we're confessing our need for a Savior. Mm-hmm. We're confessing that, that we're broken, sinful people who need. A savior. I love what Charles Haddon Spurgeon says. He says, The idea of having no sin is a delusion. You are altogether deceived if you say so. The truth is not in you. You have not seen things in the true light. You must have shut your eyes to the high requirements of the law. You must be a stranger to your own heart. That's an interesting phrase. Hmm. You must be a stranger to your own heart. You must be blind to your own conduct every day, and you must have forgotten to search your thoughts and to weigh your motives. Or you have detected or you would have detected the presence of sin. He who cannot find water in the sea is not more foolish than the man who cannot perceive sin in his own members. Hmm. As the salt flavors every drop of the Atlantic, so does sin 
affect every atom of our human nature. And uh, that's from his book, Honest Dealings with God. And I think it's very essential that we acknowledge who we are pre-Christ, that we acknowledge that we're sinful people Mm -hmm. in desperate need of a Savior. And John is obviously getting at the heart of that here in these verses. And there is good news that if we confess these sins to God, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And um, that is the good news of the gospel. That is the hope that it's not just, hey, confess that you're an awful sinful person, but you confess that so that you can receive forgiveness and Mm -hmm. cleansing and that repentance can lead to a renewal of life. He goes on to say, and I love this phrasing, my little children. Why do you think John said, my little children? It's an affectionate term. Yeah, sure. um, it's, he's not insulting them. He's not calling them kids like we would. Yeah, if not, he he's not teaching kids <laughs> worship. No, here. no, no, no. Yeah, no. He's not doing that. And he's not trying to insult them or anything. It's an affectionate term that often elders, and I say elders in the sense of like pastors, they would use for their flock or whatever. And even there's still churches that do this to this day or whatever. You'll see that. Um, and it, again, it goes back to kind of what we talked about in the first episode. This letter is a very pastoral letter. He is yeah. clearly yeah. very much concerned. It contains theology, as it should. It contains doctrine, obviously. But the, the, the impetus for him initially writing it was very much he was concerned about these people that he committed his life to, that he had uh, been with through the hardships, been through the difficulties, and now they've gone through this terrible split or something like that or had members leave, and he's trying to help them see... Um, the beauty of what the apostles have taught and the beauty that, yes, yes, though you are sinful, there is uh, a propitiation, there is forgiveness, there is a light that can cleanse you of all that unrighteousness. One of the things that sticks out to me in this is the the contrast between how Paul's writings come across Mm -hmm. as John here. And And there's at least some indication in Scripture that Paul was not nearly as harsh in his presence as he was in his writing because he was accused of being more harsh. But you wouldn't find Paul, I don't think, saying things like, my little children. (laughs) Paul was always more of a a strong term, uh, a strong, harsher, more straight-to-the-point kind of approach, Mm -hmm. I guess. Yeah, it was more brash. It was. But the beauty of that to me is, okay, so here we we have two people that writing in very important foundational parts of the Scripture, yet their styles are so different. And then we look Mm -hmm. at pastors and we go, Mm -hmm. well, man, hey, this pastor, he's more compassionate, or hey, this pastor is more brash. Like, that's okay. It's okay that there's difference in in church leadership because God has uniquely defined us um, and designed us as as unique individuals. Yeah, Yeah, I think we all Some are my little children pastors. Here in the same church, I think all three of us pastor very differently. Yeah, Yeah. Uh, absolutely. And I think that's good. I think it's good. I think it's Mm -hmm. healthy. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it's... It's important that we don't compare ourselves to other people. It's good to look at somebody and go, man, I wish I was more like that sure. in an aspect of that's an admirable trait, that's a fruit sure. of the Spirit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's not okay to say, I wish God had designed me to be a different kind of person or yes. a different kind yes. of yeah. pastor, those kinds of things. So um, not really the point of the text, but it did at least catch my attention as we were going through. He said, I am writing to you these things so that you may not sin. He, he lays his purpose out there that yeah. I'm telling you this so that you would live in the light, so that you would walk in faithfulness, you'd walk in obedience, that you would pursue Jesus. But implicitly here, you're going to sin. He says if anyone does sin, and you're going to sin, you're going to make mistakes, yeah. we have an advocate with the Father. Why is it important that we have an advocate for the Father? And what does that even mean? It would be someone who pleads our case on our behalf, mm-hmm. would be an advocate. Um, but Matt, I mean... Uh, pretty much 
does that as with CASA, right? Aren't oh, you yes. Just, you're, you're, isn't that your role as an advocate? I know where you're going with that. You can serve uh, me first. <laughs> <laughs> but isn't that your role with CASA? You're an advocate, like a child advocate? Yes. Sort yeah. Of? Uh, children uh, obviously legally can't speak for themselves until they get to a certain age or what have you. Uh, and even then, it's still kind of a, a, a weird kind of in-between type thing. Yeah. Uh, so what I do is I, I check on and make sure everybody's doing what they're doing. I check on the well-being of the child, if they're with foster, if they're with uh, their parents, but it's a, a kind of go-between thing. And I just make sure everything's running the way it needs to according to what the court has uh, asked and required. Mm-hmm. Um, so I am, to a, a large degree, am advocating on their case. Yeah. And, and I think that same that same picture of an advocate uh, is is the same thing here um, on mm-hmm. a much deeper level, of course. But sure. yeah. um, I think we have because we sin is so serious, we need a very serious advocate yeah. on our behalf. Um, and also, I think, and it's not explicitly implied here, but um, because we have an accuser that accuses us day and night. Yeah. Um, so uh, it's it's also important that we have an advocate that advocates for us day yeah. and night. Mm-hmm. You know? Well, sometimes you hear people say, if you were accused of something in, in court of law, that you'd want the best lawyer that money could buy. You'd want the best yeah. represent you. There's only one advocate that could represent us before the Father, and that is Jesus Christ. And, yeah. um, he is the one. Now, Pastor Matt mentioned a word earlier that we find in a lot of translations that Christ is a propitiation for our mm-hmm. sins. Now, we don't use that word very often. It doesn't just flow off of the tongue. What does it mean? Propitiation, because I think there's a lot of theological depth in that um, term. Well, it kind of goes. Uh, one of the ways to look at it is we were just talking about the difference between differences between John and Paul. Yeah. So when we see propitiation and, and the way, particularly Paul uses it, we we tend to take the way Paul uses it and applies it to how John would use it, which is not always the case. Um, now, there's obviously a lot of Overlap. Similarity, overlap, yeah. a lot of similarity of thought between the two of them, but it's not quite the same. Paul uses it more in a legal sense, which is technically accurate, but John is using it more in a, a broader sense than that. It kind of reminded me, I was reading um, Karen Job's commentary on First John, and she even makes this point. If you go back to the Gospel of John, the very first chapter, right, he uses what could be another phrase for propitiation is, what does John Baptist say when he sees Jesus? Look the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that's really this idea of what propitiation is, is that he is taking away the sin and giving us his righteousness. Yeah. Um, Daniel Aiken points out that this this exact word is used four times in the Scripture, once by Paul Mm -hmm. um, in Romans chapter 3, verse 25. It's also mentioned in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. And then John uses the word twice in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2 here, and then later on in 4, verse 10. But he says this, The word carries the idea of sanctification. Jesus Christ, by his bloody sacrifice on the cross, satisfied God's holiness and turned away his righteous wrath from sinners. Mm -hmm. The wrath that should have been poured out on sinners was poured out on Jesus. The judgment that should have been experienced by sinners was experienced by Jesus. The hell that should have been experienced by sinners was experienced by sinners. And I think that's, that's the heart of what propitiation is, that he took it all. He took our judgment, sure. our punishment, our experience, and paid the ultimate price for us so that we could get what we did not deserve, which yeah. is his righteousness. Vody Bauckham, whenever he refers to propitiation, he says, we, we often say, and, th- and it's a true statement, um, that Christ died for us. And he said, that is a true statement. He said, but it would be more more exact for propitiation that Christ died as us. Yeah. Um, he said, that that's a better picture of what actually happened 
Um, though both of them are the same thing, it's just it's just the phraseology. Um, sure. It just yeah. uh, kind of rings a little truer. Um, but he says, you know, when he's talking about propitiation, he doesn't use the term a lot when he speaks, but yeah. that, that's what he's meaning whenever he says that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, when you understand that, like when you grasp what propitiation is, what Jesus really did for us, it's hard to say, no, thank you, Jesus. I don't really want to live for you. I'll, I'll take the gift, but I don't really want to serve you. I really don't, I don't really want to follow you, th- those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Because I, I think many times when we find ourselves looking at situations of people walking in darkness and, and not falling. I think it's because they don't truly understand the gospel. They don't truly understand what Christ has done for them. Yeah, and, and David Guzik, whenever he's um, uh, on his commentary on this um, John's letter, he, he's, he leans towards they're not necessarily um, talking about justification because he's, he's talking about having fellowship with the father. Like you mm-hmm. can't with sin in your life, you can't have mm-hmm. true fellowship with sure. the father. And so he said, I don't think he's exactly talking about justification. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's more, and he's not necessarily talking about sanctification. He's talking about having a relationship with yeah. God mm-hmm. and with sin in your life. You can't do that as scripture says you can and should do that. Right. Um, and it's, and the thing is, it's, it's not, it's, he mentions it. It's not by your obligation. It's for your good, yeah, you right. know, to have fellowship with the Father. Yeah, yeah, you could argue that John's primary theme, if you look at his gospel, if you look at his three letters, uh, you could throw a revelation in there. His primary theme throughout all of his work is this idea of communion with God. Just as Jesus and the Father have union and are together and united, we likewise, we are in the process of being in that same union, being united right. to them or whatever. And we've been away because of our sin, but Jesus has brought us near through justification. He's doing it through sanctification. And one day we look forward to glorification where it will be done in its entirety. It will be completely sanctified. Sin and death will be gone forever. Yep. And I think when we lean into this, it, it changes what we think about as believers because so much of the emphasis as a believer can be, let me try not to sin. Let me try to be good. Let me, and when in reality, I need to, to lean into what God has done for me. And I think it's why it's important that we strive to understand and to preach the gospel. I think that's why Paul's like, don't ever graduate from the gospel because mm-hmm. when I'm sinning, when, and, and in my life, I'm talking in a personal situation, when, when I'm drifting from God in my life, it's because I'm drifting away from the gospel. It's not because I, I'm wanting to go do rebellious things. And so it's like the solution to that is not to go, no, I don't want that. Don't touch that. The solution to that is to go, let me pull in. Let me lean into the gospel and what Jesus has done for me because that's going to motivate obedience in my life. Mm-hmm. All right, that's going to lead us into our deep dive. So we'll be back in just a minute with our deep dive. We are back for our deep dive, and today we're going to deep dive into a topic that's mentioned um, in the New Testament, specifically in relation to the New Covenant. Jesus is often referred to in Hebrews as the ultimate high priest or the chief high priest. What does this mean? What does a believer, um, how do they take this and how do they understand that Jesus is our high priest? Well, I guess first you need to understand what 
because uh, I mean that's that's such a Jewish term, a high priest. Mm-hmm. Like uh, mm-hmm. being Gentiles, we don't understand much about high priests, so we need to understand what high priests actually did. They were from the tribe of Levi. They were Levitical priests, is what they would mm-hmm. uh, have been referred to uh, as. And what they would do is offer up sacrifices for sin on behalf of the people. Uh, is kind of what their their I guess their main role. I don't think it was their only role, but mm-hmm. it was their main role. They they offered up sacrifices to God um, mm-hmm. on behalf. And so, to if if Christ is that, then uh, we're it, you know He was the great High Priest, which means like the High Priest had to do it every year. They had to offer up these sacrifices year after year after year after year on behalf of the people um, because. The law, the perfect law of God, demanded that there be a penalty for sin, and so they would uh, offer up these sacrifices on behalf of the people to God on behalf of sin. So since Christ is referred to as the great high priest or the ultimate high priest, he once and for all, he offered it one time, mm-hmm. and it was sufficient for eternity. Yeah. Um, so As Hebrews uh, chapter 10 says, it, he, he did it and he sat down. Right, and, and instead of instead of him bringing a sacrifice, he offered himself as the sacrifice. Yes, yeah. He's both high priest and the actual sacrifice. Yeah, yeah. and so that's, uh, I mean, that's what made him the great high priest. I, mm-hmm. I remember my kids um, used to watch this one cartoon, and this young boy was about to go meet his great grandfather. And he didn't, but he didn't understand the term great grandfather. He's like, he was wondering, man, what has he done that made him so great? <laughs> and you know, he didn't understand that that's just what you call him because it's your sure. grandfather's yeah. father, you know. Uh, but uh, the whole episode was him, his our little boy's imagination running wild on everything that this grandfather did that made him so great. And every time I see great high priest, I off, always think about yeah. that cartoon. And but yeah. but in a real sense, I mean that is like our like what made yeah. Christ the great high priest. It really was in that same sense. It it wasn't because he was the priest of the priest. It's because he did do something that was so yeah. great mm-hmm. it made him the great high priest. Yeah, I absolutely love that discourse of Hebrews nine and ten where it just points out why Jesus is so much greater mm-hmm. than the Old Testament priest system. That was set to point us towards Jesus. So mm-hmm. how does Jesus being the great high priest, how does that change things? Like I'm thinking in the life of an early Jew who grew up as a with a priest and then Jesus becomes a great high priest, how does that change things? Because that's ultimately what a lot of Hebrews is getting at in some of the New Testament writings, because these believers are, are trying to transition from the Old Covenant to the New. Sure. Well, first, uh, obviously it meant they didn't have to continue to offer sacrifices. They didn't have to continue to once a year have a service where all the sins of Israel were forgiven or what have you, because Jesus had already done that. So now so much of the Christian life is just looking back to, this is what Jesus has already done. Mm-hmm. And his sacrifice is so much better because it continues to sanctify us. It continues to cleanse us. It continues to forgive us. Um, and also, this question just in general made me think of the importance of reading and knowing the Old Testament. We we tend to, and by we, I mean American evangelical Christians, we tend to focus on the New Testament, and rightfully so, right? Because the New Testament's more direct. There's no, It's not as much of a headache to work through. However, two-thirds of Scripture is the Old Testament. Yeah. Um, and so it's healthy. I mean, Hebrews Hebrews is hard to understand if you haven't already read through that stuff. Yes. Uh, and even though we don't have we haven't lived it um, culturally or through practice, 
it's still helpful to go back and understand that stuff because it helps us better understand what Jesus has done. And Hebrews helps us with that. But even going back and studying the Old Testament, in fact, even at the time of the recording of this episode, we are about to begin a series through the Old Testament, not the entirety of the Old Testament, (laughs) (laughs) but the Joseph series, partly because a couple of months ago we sat down and we talked about things. And one of the things we came to the conclusion was, you know, we really haven't, we haven't gone through enough Old Testament stuff here as we started this church or what have you. And this is our kind of one of our opportunities to kind of correct that uh, because the New Testament is so much richer when you yes. start studying the Old Testament, yeah, it just it just makes everything sweeter. I, I don't it's it, I don't even know what to compare it to. to be honest with you, yeah. but and, which is you what you said earlier. It's more difficult. It is more difficult, and There's it's no more difficult. That. And and this is the challenge. Like so, even preparing for Joseph this week is to to not just the easy way to preach the Old Testament and list the Old Testament is just to make it all about yourself. Yeah. yeah, and to go okay, here's what we need to do. But what we you really are striving to do is you preach the Old Testament is to dig under the surface and go, okay, how does how does this thing fit into the whole story of Scripture? Mm-hmm. How does this thing push towards the gospel? How does it highlight the gospel? What are Christ types do we have here? And, of course, there's application. This week we'll have application. Of, sure. You know, we're wanting God to develop a life of courage and character in me, but I first have to understand what was going on in the yeah, life so of Joseph. It's so easy to, to preach those just as narratives, you know, like literary yes. narratives. It's mm-hmm. so easy yeah. to... To be able to preach, okay, this is actually what happened. But to plug yourself in as Joseph, and mm-hmm. yeah, to, but to to dig deeper and and to find the the spiritual meaning and especially the spiritual application, uh, it takes a lot more work to do it that way instead of just, hey, this is the good things about Joseph. Be more like Joseph, you know, yeah. it, because that's not the point of scripture. The point of scripture is be more like Christ. Right. Uh, so you have to dig deeper into the narrative of Joseph. Uh, to understand that, yeah. and then after you understand it, it, it's a little easier to apply. Yeah. But you first you have to you have to dig for it, I guess. Yeah. There's a pastor in Kentucky, uh, David Prince, who I've listened to him preach uh, for a few years, and he always compares it to when you're reading the Old Testament, you have to put on your gospel glasses, is what he says, because all of it is ultimately about Jesus. So once you you can read this, you you study it, you think, all right, so how does this apply to Jesus? How does this reveal us? Uh, to reveal to us more sweetly and more truly what the work he has done is and, and what it means for us and how we are supposed to change our lives on the regard of it. And then then you can look back and be like, okay, well, Joseph was a good example, right? Because even I think it's Hebrews that talks about this idea that all that happened as examples for us. Yeah. We're supposed to learn stuff from Joseph and Daniel sure. and Elijah, and as we kind of did last uh, season or whatever. But we have to go through Christ in order to rightly yeah. understand that and rightly apply that to our lives. And I, I would think it would uh, just, since we're talking about Hebrews and all, as a transitional period or as a transition or a book of tr- kind of transition, I think we can kind of at least graft some of it because I, I would imagine it would be really hard to be first century Jewish man and you're used to doing something. Mm-hmm. And now it's like, no, I have to trust in what was done. Mm-hmm. And so that's a big transition. But yep. I think we do it today. We we want to trust in something we can do. Oh, sure. And yep. so we're like, no, it's it's Jesus plus all my good works. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh good works are great. They 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 need to happen. I'm I'm not saying, hey, trust in Jesus yeah. and you know, nothing good comes from it, you know, yeah. that you tangibly see. That's the furthest thing from saying, but it's not Jesus plus good works, it's Jesus plus nothing. Yeah. And Jesus creates good works. As Ephesians chapter two says, you know, that's a great verse. We're saved by faith and grace, and no man mm-hmm. should boast and all those things. But then it says we're created to be his workmanship for good works. That's like right. that's that's the outflow and Jesus 
equals good works, not and he Jesus created plus good them works. ahead of time for us to walk in them, right. yeah, um, or or to uh, as we to have a pattern of good works yeah. in our right. life. Uh, he he's created those ahead of time. So I, I think we could kind of draw that from the same thing uh, uh, in Hebrew because yeah. I think that would have been a big struggle for them. Yeah, well, and Paul addresses this in Romans chapter 12 too. These believers are like, well, what do I do? I'm, I'm supposed to take sacrifices to the temple. That's how I worship God. And he says, therefore, I beseech you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, that you present your lives as a living sacrifice to God. You don't go to the altar anymore to bring the, all these animals and incense offerings and those things. You bring your life and you lay it down and say, God, here I am, transform me, change me, mm-hmm. use me. And then there's no coincidence that he follows that by talking about how we're to serve God through the body of Christ and um, different roles that we can have because that's what a believer does. As they mm-hmm. say, Christ, here's my life. You've died for me. Everything's a sacrifice to you because I want yeah. to follow you. And I think that's a big leap for him. I thought it had to be. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's a big leap for us, and we didn't even yeah. live under the <laughs> yeah, Old Testament system. Big leap system. for everybody. <laughs> the other important thing about Christ being this great high priest is that it broke down the barrier between God and man. So uh, a whole part of the priesthood was that they had to go in, and they had to sanct- become holy, and they had to cleanse themselves. There's this whole ritual so they could enter into the Holy of Holies on behalf of people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But Christ is the Holy of Holies. He, he has broke down. His sacrifice cleansed us so that we can approach God, so that we don't need a earthly priest to go on our behalf before the Father. We can go straight to him and go through Jesus. Yeah, because Jesus is both fully God and fully man, as we talked about last week. So that's yeah. how one of the ways in which he can serve as the high priest, is yeah. that he is pure, and he is, just like we kind of talked about earlier, light. He is he is the embodiment of light, the, the original idea of light, so to speak. Uh, he's got that purity, that righteousness that only God has. But then also, he has that manly nature, just without the sin or whatever. So he, he's able to stand in between. And if that blows your mind a little bit as a listener today, you're in good company. Because when we fully start leaning into that stuff, we can't completely understand it. We can't completely grasp how awesome and great of a high priest that Jesus is for us. Well, that's our deep dive for today. We'll be back in just a minute to wrap up this week of The Word We are back to wrap up this week of the Wordsmith Podcast. And to wrap it up, I want to look at something that John said that we mentioned earlier. He said, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. So how does the knowledge that we've gathered from these few verses help us not sin, help us to walk in the light, as John is calling us to do here? Well, first, I think keeping it in context uh, helps us to understand because you say, well, man, he's he's writing these things so that I may not sin, you, if you took just that one verse or that one um, couple of verses right there in, in chapter 2, you would think, oh, there, it's possible to not sin. But if you keep keep it in context, so no, it's just I'm, I'm doing this so you won't have a pattern of sin in your life. Mm-hmm. And so you, if you keep it in context, you understand what he means when he says, I'm writing these things so that you won't sin. He's talking about a pattern of sin, which he's already fully established you know, prior to this. Mm-hmm. I think reminding ourselves of our sinful nature, even though we're new creatures in Christ, let there be no confusion, reminding ourselves of that uh, gives us an opportunity for self-reflection, um, to kind of test every spirit, so to speak, to, to look at ourselves 
um, and to see the ways in which we're still struggling with sin and the ways mm. we may not be even aware that we're struggling with sin. Because, again, I mean, sin's not a created thing, right? And that's Augustine, and we don't have a lot of time to get into it, but um, sin is the, the, the position of the heart, so to speak, born out of the heart, and then it leads to actions. Kind of like how faith in Christ leads to good works. Yeah. Well, sin in your heart leads to bad works or evil works right. or sinful works. Sure. So the remind, to remind ourselves and to remember that we are sinners— it gives us an opportunity. It doesn't mean it happens automatically, but it gives us an opportunity to look at ourselves and in what way am I sinning and I don't even know it? Lord, yeah. reveal this to me. Give me guidance. Because it's possible, you've heard it said before, it's possible to do the right thing for the wrong reasons, yeah. right? And so you, you don't want to do that. And those are the subtle ways, especially if you're walking with Christ, you've been doing it for years. It's, it's little subtle things that you may not even think of as sinful anymore or never, never, never thought of sinful that it can kind of seep into your life. Oh. Yeah. David addresses that in Psalm 19. He says, God, forgive me of my presumptuous sins mm-hmm. and my hidden faults, the mm-hmm. things I don't even know that I'm doing, the things I'm presumptuously doing every day thinking they're okay. Yeah. And that there's no coincidence there that he prays that after seeing the glory of God through Scripture and through creation, and he sees how amazing God is, and he says, God, forgive me, mm-hmm. <laughs> because you are so holy, I'm so unholy. That's right. and, and he, but I just love that little tagline that he put on there, forgive me of my presumptuous sins, my hidden faults, things I don't even know that I'm doing. And um, he also prays in the Psalms, Lord, search me and yes. know my heart. Yes. Mm-hmm. Reveal these things to me. Mm-hmm. I think the key to walking in the light that John is referring to here is to live a life of confession and repentance, mm-hmm. to continually realizing that one, we're a sinner that needs a Savior, and that we need to turn from things um, in our life. And, and that's the, the key, I think, that John is pushing here. Um, as Spurgeon said, not to be a stranger of our own heart, mm-hmm. to realize the own, our own sinfulness and wickedness that needs repenting of, and to daily say, God, help me turn. Help me turn cl- closer to you. Help me turn away from the world. Help me um, live in the forgiveness that you've granted me. So great teaching um, by John here. Man, this, these letters are just going to be uh, wealth of knowledge and information that's going to help us grow in our walk with Christ. I've enjoyed this week of the Wordsmith Podcast. No matter how you listen to us, whether it's on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, almost anywhere that podcasts are played, review us, like us, share it with a friend, help others to get um, access to it. And we'll be back next week with another episode of the Wordsmith.